All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Monday, and that means we are in the confessional corner. This is Pastor Doug Minton here to start off the 24th article of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, looking briefly at the introductory paragraphs for this great article. We're going to look at articles, or Article 24, paragraphs 1 through 15, as Melanchthon just lays out his reaction initially to the confutations saying of how horrible this article is. All right, Article 24 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. At the outset, we must again make this preliminary statement. We do not abolish the Mass, but religiously keep and defend it. Masses are celebrated among us every Lord's Day and on other festivals. The sacrament is offered to those who wish to use it after they have been examined and absolved, and the usual public ceremonies are observed, the series of lessons, of prayers, vestments, and other such things. All right, so the first thing the confutation said is that we have gotten rid of the Mass, that because we don't do it exactly the way the Pope has said, that then obviously we don't have the Mass. And Melanchthon says right up front, we do not abolish the Mass. We actually keep it and defend it. And this is something that has always struck people when I have gone through this article in the, in the Apology about the Mass. Masses are celebrated among us every Lord's Day and on the other festivals. This is one of the key passages from the Confessions for every Sunday Communion. And not just every Sunday communion, but for the major feast of the year, Ascension, Epiphany, the Confession of St. Peter, all of these great festivals and feasts that are in the church calendar that are oftentimes only done if they fall on a Sunday and it's not already a different season. So like we've had a couple of times in the last decade where Ascension has been Good Friday or Palm Sunday, and so it doesn't get, not Ascension, the Annunciation, where Gabriel comes to the Virgin Mary and tells her that she is going to be the mother of the Messiah nine months before Christmas. But if that's in Lent, especially if that's in Holy Week, yeah, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be uh, celebrated. But in Wittenberg and in the places where Luther had great sway in his lifetime, they had communion on every Sunday and they had it on all the major feasts in the year. Now, granted, Luther pared down the list of feasts that the, the church kept in Wittenberg, but then again, the Council of Trent also pared down a lot of their saints' days as well when they began to realize that some of the saints didn't exist in the first place. Uh, and I believe they do it again in the First Vatican Council. But Melanchthon wants to start off saying that we do not get rid of the Mass. We celebrate it, and he will talk about it throughout the entire article, that we actually celebrate it in a more Christian way than the Pope does. We keep going on. The adversaries have a long speech about the use of the Latin language in the Mass. 
In this speech, they joke about how it benefits an unlearned hearer to hear, in the faith of the church, a mass that he does not understand. They clearly imagine that the mere work of hearing is a service, that it benefits without being understood. We are unwilling to rebelliously pursue these things, but we leave them to the judgment of the reader. We mention them only for the purpose of stating and passing that we also keep the Latin lessons and prayers. However, ceremonies should be celebrated to teach people scripture that those admonished by the word may conceive faith and godly fear and may also pray. This is the intent of ceremonies. So we keep the Latin language to aid those who are learning and understand Latin. We mix with it German hymns so that the people also may have something to learn, and by which faith and godly fear may be produced. This custom has always existed in the churches. Some more frequently and others more rarely introduced German hymns into the service. Yet almost everywhere the people sang something in their own tongue. However, it has never been written or presented that people benefit from hearing lessons they cannot understand or that ceremonies benefit not because they teach or admonish, but by the outward act, ex opere operato, because they are performed that way and are looked upon. Away with such pharisaical opinions. All right, we keep the Latin because there are people who know Latin. There are people who understand Latin, but we also use it in the vernacular. German in Germany, Dutch in the Netherlands, Danish in Denmark, and so on and so forth. We keep those so that everyone has the opportunity to understand and increase their faith. That is the building up of the church that we strive to excel at, that St. Paul told us yesterday in our epistle reading. We don't have to know absolutely everything, because we're not going to know absolutely everything. But we need to be able to have the understanding and the ability to understand it. Because if we don't, it's simply just going through the motions. Yes, I went to church. I don't know anything that happened about it because it was all in a foreign language that I do not know. But I went so I can check that off my list. God will be happy with me. That's exactly what the Pharisees thought. It didn't matter what they wanted as long as you did it their way. All right, pick up in paragraphs 6 through 8. A few more things going on here as Melanchthon continues to talk about the Mass being held among the Lutherans. The fact that we hold only public or common Mass is no offense against the Church Catholic, for even today private Masses are not held in the Greek churches. There is only a public Mass, and that on the Lord's Day and festivals. In the monasteries, daily Mass is held, but this is only public. These are the traces of former customs. Before Gregory, no ancient writer mentions private masses. We no longer recognize how they got started. Clearly, after the begging monks came to power, mostly from false opinions and because of financial gain, private masses increased to the point that for a long time, all good people desired to set some limit on private masses. St. Francis wished to correct this matter, so he decided that each fraternity should be content with a single daily common mass. Later, this was changed, either by superstition or for the sake of financial gain. So where it is advantageous to them, they themselves change the institutions of the fathers. Later, they cite the fathers' authority against us. Epiphanius writes that in Asia, communion was celebrated three times a week, and there were no daily masses. Indeed, he says that this custom was handed down from the apostles. Where he says, assemblies for communion were set up by the apostles to be held on the fourth day, on the evening of the Sabbath, and on the Lord's day. 
All right, so not only do we hold mass, but we only hold public masses. We don't do private masses, which by the time of the Reformation became a point where you had side chapels for all the major basilicas. And in those side chapels, priests were just saying over and over and over and over again the mass because they had been paid by somebody to do mass to help bring their loved one out of purgatory. Who's there? Just the priest. Nobody else. That does us no good. The body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ only does you good if you receive it. It does not do us any good if we have communion services where nobody's there. And again, they talk about being on the Lord's Day and on the festivals. And before Gregory, this would be Gregory the Great, uh, the Pope at the beginning of the 6th century, nobody talks about private masses before that. Nobody. The Greek church, the Eastern Orthodox, and all, of the, and all of the variations, not just Greek, but Russian and every other nationality that is involved in the Orthodox communion, none of them have private masses. Everything is public. And so even St. Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, wanted one daily common public mass in his monasteries. And of course that got changed. Why? Financial gain. If you can make people pay for the Mass, you can do a lot more. So there were stories of different monks that would say Mass 10 to 12 times a day. And that does nobody good. That doesn't even do the monk any good. But again, this is the whole idea of ex opere operato by the work being worked. This is that whole mindset. That as long as you can check off that it has been done, that's all that matters. That counts before God. Jesus doesn't go like that. And that's where we continue to go on throughout this article on many things. But we move on to paragraphs 9 through 12. The adversaries compile many references on this topic to prove that the Mass is a sacrifice. Yet this great war of words will be quieted when the single reply is put forward that this line of authorities, reasons, and references, however long, does not prove that the Mass bestows grace by the outward act, ex opere operato again, or that when applied on behalf of others it merits the forgiveness of venial immortal sins of guilt and punishment for them. This one reply overthrows all objections of the adversaries, not only in this confutation, but in all the writings about the Mass they have published. This is the issue our readers are to be reminded about. Echines reminds the judges that just as boxers struggle with one another for their position, so they should labor with their adversaries about the disputed point and not permit him to wander beyond the discussion. In the same way, our adversaries should be compelled to speak on the subject as presented. When the disputed point has been thoroughly understood, a decision about the arguments on both sides will be very easy. We showed in our confession our belief that the Lord's Supper does not give grace by the outward act, and that when applied on behalf of others, alive or dead, it does not merit for them the forgiveness of sins, guilt, or punishment by the outward act. This position is supported by a clear and firm proof. It is impossible to receive the forgiveness of our sins because of our own work by the outward act. The terrors of sin and death must be overcome through faith, 
when we comfort our hearts with the knowledge of Christ and believe that for his sake we are forgiven and that his merits and righteousness are granted to us. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace, Romans 5.1. These things are so sure and so firm that they cannot stand against all the gates of hell, Matthew 16.18. The adversary can compile all kinds of arguments and references to things but one thing stops them. Nowhere does it promise that just doing it ourselves will gain us forgiveness of sins. Because if you want to take it logically to the extreme other end, is that we can take communion at home by ourselves without the assembly people. And it works just as well as being together with our brothers and sisters in the church service. We had a lot of people who did that with COVID, and that was an absolutely horrible, horrible choice that they made. And many places are still trying to rebuild from that crumbling down. But here is the point. It is impossible to receive the forgiveness of our sins because of our works. That is the whole point of justification. We can't do it ourselves. But, oh, if we simply just go to Mass... We've done it ourselves. No, that is not the way it goes. All right, we're going to finish off our brief look this week with paragraphs 13 through 15, as now he's gotten into what we will be talking about next week with what is a sacrifice. And this is a lot of what Article 24 goes on. But continuing to remind us that it is not the doing, it is the receiving that is the main point. All right, paragraphs 13 through 15. If we are to say only as much as is necessary, the main point has already been stated. No sane person can accept the Pharisaic and pagan opinion that, about the outward act. Yet this opinion still exists among the people and has increased countlessly the number of masses. For masses are purchased to reconcile God's anger, and by this work they want to receive the forgiveness of guilt and of punishment. They want to obtain whatever is necessary in every kind of life. They even want to free the dead. Monks and philosophers have taught this Pharisaic opinion in the church. Although our main point has already been stated, because the adversaries foolishly pervert many scripture passages to defend their errors, we will add a few things on this topic. In the confutation, they said many things about sacrifice, although we purposely avoided this term in our confession because of its ambiguity. We have presented what those persons whose abuses we now condemn understand by sacrifice. To explain the scripture passages that have been wickedly perverted, we must first present what a sacrifice is. For ten years, the adversaries have published many volumes about sacrifice, and yet not one of them so far has defined sacrifice. They only grab the word sacrifices either from the scriptures or the fathers. Afterward, they add their own thoughts as though a sacrifice means whatever they please. Again, we talk about how wonderful things are, or how we think everything is wonderful. And a lot of times it's simply just our own happy little world in our head. And this is exactly what the adversaries have been doing for the 1520s. Book after book after book published about sacrifices. And yet never once 
do they say what a sacrifice is or why it is a sacrifice. They just simply bring this out, especially in regards to the priest being the new second coming of the Levitical priesthood, as we looked at in some of the work with the marriage of the priest, and we'll look again at it with monastic vows, that we must have sacrifices because God instituted sacrifices in Leviticus. Yes, God instituted sacrifices in Leviticus. But he, he instituted the sacrifices to point us to the one sacrifice that means anything. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that gives us the body and blood that are in the Mass, that are in the Lord's Supper. And so what does Melanchthon do? As we'll see next week, he starts off by defining what is a sacrifice and what kinds of sacrifices are there in the Scriptures, are there in the Father's going through, taking the passages that the Roman theologians have perverted for their own desires to then say, this is what the scriptures actually say. And that is the great thing of the Lutheran faith and the Lutheran confessions, is that it tears everything down to say, this is what the scriptures actually say. Not what we want them to mean, not if we try to cherry pick things around out of context, but this is what they say. Therefore, when we come to the Lutheran confessions, these are the writings in which we teach what we believe, teach, and confess before God and before the world. This is the great joy of being a Lutheran, is having that right there and saying, this is what, and then having the scripture verses to say, this is where it goes. And we can go back and look, as we will on a couple of these uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks, because we have about six weeks of this article on the Mass, because there is so much to do with this. Not as much as, say, with repentance or justification, but again, as we've seen already, we go back to those articles, Article 4 and Article 12, over and over again throughout this article, because the Mass is the one place where we continue to see our connection to justification, our connection to repentance. All right, that's it for this week. I am Pastor Doug Minton, thanking you for standing in the confessional corner with me, encouraging you to be back next week as we continue working through the article on the Mass. Be here for digging deeper through the Psalms, the moments of meditation, and all the other things that are on this podcast here to help you be equipped so that you might wrestle with the theology that is around you today and every day. Amen. <laughs>